Welcome into episode two of Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman. This is my podcast where we get to explore anything we want. Piques my interest, you'll eventually find an episode on it here. Today we talk about perhaps the topic that consumes my mind more than any other, politics. I'm certainly not alone in that in 2020, nor at any point since 2016. This conversation about politics, though, isn't going to be some touch on the third rail, tiptoe around it conversation, some baseline basic chat about how everything is broken in the buildings 30 minutes away from my house. Nah, this is, this is a conversation between an engaged and informed voter, me, and someone whose job it is to get people elected, who you'll meet in just a second. My journey into political awareness kicked up in a big way in 2015 when I moved to the D.C. area. The more I learned, the more solidly I became a Democrat. I had always leaned left and voted accordingly. I've never voted for Republican for anything, as far as I can remember. But I wanted to keep some independence in my mind. That's long changed, and the reason why is simple. From both a values and a policy standpoint, I believe in what Democrats believe in. I believe in life having more value when you feel secure, can have a sense of purpose, and feel like you belong. And on a policy level, that means trying to raise people's lot in life by acknowledging that when we work together and put more into the collective American experience, we get more out of it. That includes financial policies and how we treat people. I also look at history, recent and not, and see that democratic policies work and the arc of society always bends, sometimes faster than others, towards inclusion. Head or heart, it is unapologetically where I am, though I'm not a blind team player. I have high standards for what I want out of my public officials, and as we'll discuss, that doesn't mean I've exactly been thrilled with how things have gone in the last, oh, half decade or so. When I wanted to start this podcast, politics was always on my radar, but little did I know that I'd get my first political guest by leaving D.C. and going back to, of all places, Syracuse, New York home of Syracuse University, my alma mater, and the finest college radio station on the planet, WJPZ-FM Z89. It was banquet weekend this weekend, an annual gathering that means so much that a bunch of us who had that same shared experience in that magical place come back to Syracuse during winter. For Mary Mancini, this year's pilgrimage was different than any other as she was inducted into our WJPZ Hall of Fame. Mary's the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party, and her journey to that position is pretty unique. She loved radio, which brought her to SU, and as I learned this weekend, she was really good at it. Her fellow Hall of Fame inductee, Carl Weinstein, said she was way ahead of her time as a programmer, and they knew then, in 1985, when Mary graduated, that she'd go on to amazing things. Well, not technically graduated in 1985. That's a story from this weekend. For those that were there, thanks for listening. If you weren't there, don't worry about it. She graduated eventually. After Syracuse, though, Mary decided to venture out of radio. Her first job was with a record company in Manhattan. Five years later, she moved to Nashville and opened Lucy's, a record store that specialized in punk rock. After six years of that, she went into the technology space and spent the rest of her time getting more involved in the community. She worked for an activist and advocacy organization, and after a while decided that's where she wanted to be full-time. She took the lead of that organization and put all of her efforts into grassroots organizing Democrats in deep red Tennessee. In 2014, she decided it was time to move from the activist wing of the party into office. She ran for state senate, lost, but the following year, she ran for chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party and won. 
She won again in 2017 and again in 2019 and just oversaw Tennessee's primary as we move towards November's general elections. Mary's background as an organizer and as a communicator made her the perfect guest for me to talk to, to frankly air some frustrations I have as a voter and as a citizen who wants to see us do better. Here's our conversation, recorded in the place that means so much to us both, Z89 in Syracuse, New York. My number one question that I typically have when I talk to people in politics that are making these decisions is why are Democrats scared? We have the more popular policies, yet I think consistently we fail to make arguments for those policies because we're scared that we that some part of it is going to be picked on by Republicans or the media might try to both sides something as opposed to just hardcore advocating for the things that we genuinely believe will make people's lives better, which in theory should be pretty popular. Why, why do you think that so many Democrats um, nationally, statewide, in areas that are very blue and areas that are more purple or even red are afraid to make those arguments? And do you agree with that, that assessment that many are afraid to make those arguments? So let me... Let me ask you a question first mm-hmm. before we get into this, because I, I do somewhat agree with what you're saying. Um, but can you give me a specific example, a sure. specific example of, of what you exactly mean? Because I have this conversation a lot, as you mm-hmm. can imagine. Yeah. And um, I always ask somebody to clarify because people come at it from they ask the same general question, but they come at it from different angles. So what angle are you coming so at this from? I'll pick. I, I actually think this is applicable to a number of issues, but I'll, I will pick because it's everyone's favorite healthcare. Medicare for all. If you are a believer in Medicare for all, you typically try to couch that with some hiding of the fact that it's going to be higher taxes or this because saying out loud that taxes are going to be higher is seen as unpopular as opposed to simply explaining to people, no, you're going to pay less money. It's going to be called something different because it's you're paying taxes that will pay for your health care as opposed to paying insurance, which will pay for your health care and be a lot more expensive. And by the way, not cover the things. I just got a $500 bill for a, for blood work a week ago. Like I didn't expect that. I expected my insurance to cover. It, it was part of my annual physical. Mm. And if I'm a candidate arguing for health care for all, because that is a policy idea that I've come to because I realize it's best for everybody. I am telling people you are going to get better health care and you're going to you're going to pay higher taxes, but all this other money you spend is going to go away, so it's going to save you money overall. And, and I don't understand why, for instance, on that particular issue, so many people are afraid to make that argument as opposed to trying to find some middle ground and and kind of centrate for the sake of being in the in the middle and, and trying to make a lot of people happy. Okay, so I can't speak for candidates. Mm-hmm. It's hard to. If, if we want to t- look at the national field for, for president, I think there's a couple of candidates that are making the case for Medicare mm-hmm. for all. And they're yeah. doing exactly what you say. Right. There Bur- are other- Bernie Sanders, for any other right. arguments that people have against him, has been unapologetic in this for a long time. 100%. So, but there are other candidates who don't think it should be Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And they articulate their position. And then there are candidates that, well, for the most part, every other candidate thinks that there it doesn't need to be Medicare for all. But there either needs to be a public option. 
I've heard Medicare for all who want it. Um, things need to change. Uh, but the basic value that everybody in this country, again, no matter who you are, what you look like, where you live, how you pray, who you love, should have health care, should be healthy and have health care, is a value that all Democratic candidates and all Democrats really believe in. So, yes, is there a problem with sometimes articulating that? But I would argue that not everybody on that debate stage that's a Democrat, we mm. don't have very many left now, but right. candidates left now, but everybody on that debate stage doesn't agree on how to implement it, right? They don't agree Medicare for all. What they agree on is the basic value of health care and that health care is a right. You can't be free in this country unless you're healthy. You can't reach your full potential in this country unless you're healthy. You can't reach your full potential if you can't get ahead because you get $500 medical bills that you didn't expect. You can't be free in this country to reach your full potential if you uh, have to declare bankruptcy because of medical debt. Um, You know, I mean, those stories before Obamacare, before the Affordable Care Act, those stories were rampant, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it changed... When the Affordable Care Act was passed, it changed a lot for a lot of people in good ways, but it's certainly not perfect. And that's what needs to we need to focus on is that our party, as opposed to the Republican Party, really believe that everybody should have access to affordable health care and that it is absolutely right. That's the basic difference. So I don't. I see what you're saying, but I don't see it so as actually, being a. Let me let me double click on the Affordable Care Act for a second. Click. Yes, I love. I love. That's a phrase that one of our talk shows in DC that. uses, that's and awesome. I, I love that phrasing. So I stole it from them. Shout out, Grand Danny. Um, so, the Affordable Care Act is actually a great example. And in reading the little bit that I have about kind of the aftermath of when that was passed, part of why the Obama administration did not go around ex- like touting what they had done because they didn't want to seem like they were gloating. It was a tough vote for a lot of people. But there were so many Democrats in the aftermath of that passing that were scared to tie themselves to that because the Republicans had so savaged everything about that piece of legislation. And then to the point that as 2016 was rolling around, there were people that were polled and hated Obamacare but loved the Affordable Care Act because they didn't realize they were the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that's actually maybe even a better example of this is a good policy that is helping people. Why are we afraid to say it? If that makes sense. It, it does make sense. It, it absolutely does. There is a there is a level in this conversation that um, we can't ignore. Right. And that is the role of um, media in mm-hmm. the political discourse, right, in the political landscape. So how do you know 100% that the candidates and the DNC and, um, well, first of all, let me let me take a step back. I agree with you. Some people ran away from it. Some Democrats ran away from it. And then we could get into what their districts look like and how they have to mm-hmm. run. And they're trying to win in a, in a district that is, you know, leans, Democ- leans Republican, what they have to do to, to message and things like that. But But if we ignore all that for a moment and we talk about how the any any political any political organization tries to get the message out, how do we know it's not getting they're not trying? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you know? um, How do you know that the DNC wasn't pushing out the good word about 
the Affordable Care Act. Right. right. We, we don't know that because there's a layer of between the DNC and the what people hear that is controlled by mass media. Right. 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 And then if you say, well, it's not just ma- it's not just radio and television. You also have Twitter. Yeah. But not everybody has. Right. Now, now, let me give you a perfect right. Yeah. Twitter. Twitter, Twitter has is more obsessed with Twitter. Like people on Twitter are obsessed with it. Most people aren't on it. Right. Exactly. Uh, but let me let's let me give you an example of what the landscape in Tennessee political sorry media landscape in Tennessee looks mm-hmm. like because this is what I'm most familiar with and what I've been fighting against for a long time. Mm-hmm. Tennessee has a couple of blue uh, counties cities uh, that that lean blue or are blue: Nashville, Knoxville, Chattanooga. Memphis, uh, Memphis um, Clarksville, uh, which is where the big military base is, but most of it's rural. Mm-hmm. Um, at the at the state level, we've got only conservative talk. That's all at the state level, mm-hmm. right? So a couple of a couple of jo- a couple of uh, DJ or you know people who who do conservative talk, and it's syndicated across the state and picked up, right? And that they focus on. So there's no other side of that. Right. right. But dig down deeper than that. And what you see is the local media is very important in rural communities. So small radio stations that are still owned by one person or a couple of people, uh, they're all conservative talk or religious talk. Newspapers. We've been trying for six years to get in, get our op eds about Democratic policies and values into these small town newspapers, mm. the door is closed. Yeah. Right? They're like, no. So so when I hear the question of why don't the Democrats do X when messaging, uh, I'm you have to sort of look at the landscape. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't we can't do a better job. One hundred percent we should. And since Tom Perez has taken over as a DNC chair, uh, they've done so much better than they have in the past, yeah. right? He has really, really beefed up the communications department and trying to get it out there, you know, the word out there and what our values are. So there's that whole thing, right? The media right. landscape is very is right. is, is, is sure. important and and or troublesome. The other thing people don't really realize is that when you say the Democratic Party, it's we're not we're not a monolith in that. Mm. I get this I get this all the time. I get emails that say. Tell Tom Perez to <laughs> tell and tell Tom Perez to tell all the Democratic candidates to do X. Right, and I have to laugh at that, right? Because because you would think like every day Tom Perez is talking to the campaigns, the, the presidential candidates, and the campaigns, and they're coordinating. No, the I think it's pretty clear they're not coordinating well, based well, on how some of this stuff is uh, well, going. Exactly, to the <laughs> exactly. Um, the campaigns are going to do what the campaigns are going to do, and right. that is not just at the presidential level, right? Mm-hmm. That's at the the uh, state level, the county level, the local level, the congressional level. We can do as much as we can to sort of help them mm-hmm. and steer them. I won't even say the right direction. Give them some direction. Right. But ultimately, it's their choice as to what they want to do. So, so some of the direction we've been would given our candidates is to your point. Let's be Democrats. Let's let's not try to be more like Republicans. Please. Let's not say, you know, I have a 100 percent rating from the NRA as a Democrat and you need to vote for me. Let's talk about common sense gun safety legislations that will keep our 
community safe, mm-hmm. right? So that's like one of the most extreme, hard to message topics in Tennessee. Uh, I'm sure. 100%. Yeah. But even healthcare, right? We've had 13 rural hospitals close in Tennessee. And, uh, you know, us trying to get that message out about who's who's actually responsible for that, and it's the Republicans for not expanding Medicaid in our state, that's, you know, we have to use everything to get that out. And we can say to our candidates, that's a, healthcare's a winning point for you to use in your campaign, but they don't have to listen to us, right? Like they right. can do what they want. So um, so we try to be as helpful as possible. Uh, the DNC tries to be as helpful as possible, but but in the, in the in the end, um, you know, campaigns are, 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 are autonomous and they can they can do what they want. Right. In terms of messaging. So it's hard to say, why don't the Democrats do X? Because we're not all right. And, talking to each other all the time. And we also have a much greater challenge of who we are because we are a big tent party. The Republicans yes. have a built in advantage. The Republicans have a couple of built in advantages and it's. Kind of crazy, but if if you don't realize this, then um, it, it's if you do realize this, it, politics makes a lot more sense. I'll put it that way. One, Republicans are aiming for like non college educated white people, specifically white men, and once you realize that they only have to target one group of people, their job becomes a lot easier. Two, they're also a group of people that doesn't want government to work, which makes selling any kind of government incompetence or that government should not be involved in general a lot easier. And that is why, for instance, um, this is a little bit of a, a detour, but like what happened in Iowa is a with the Democrats is a great argument for Republicans. If we are going to argue as Democrats that government can work to make people's lives better, government better work. And so when you see the the caucuses go to hell in a handbasket in Iowa, it's like, wait, you guys want to be in charge of more stuff? That's and, and I think that creates it's not unfair, but it does create a higher bar for Democrats to operate at and then uh then Republicans have to because when stuff gets screwed up, it actually helps their argument. Okay, let's talk about uh, Iowa. Okay. How do you know the Iowa caucuses got so screwed up? What do you know about them? Uh, the they had an app that was supposed to help report results. There was insufficient testing beforehand. The uh, as a result, there was no timeliness to an actual result, uh, which was obviously important for media reasons and such in the race. And to the point that, um, like if I was on Pete Buttigieg's campaign, I'd be pretty upset that we won and we got no credit for it. Um, and. There's obviously all other issues with Iowa that go to it's a very white state, yada, yada, yada. But in terms of the actual functionality of the caucuses as designed, uh, the reporting process seemed incredibly unthought out and seemed to fail spectacularly on a very high stage. So part of that is, is from what I understand, right? The vast majority of those caucuses ran like, a well, like, like well-oiled machines, mm-hmm. right? The the media, once the results didn't come in and there was some trouble with the app, mm-hmm. the media is a, a consistent outrage machine. Yes. Right? And outrage sells. And, and outrage sells. And what could have been reported on as, hey, let's go to, let's look at what's actually working and then this isn't working and the app didn't work, but they have a backup system to call in 
and you know they're working through that. And mm. and look, I'm not I'm not saying yeah. I'm not that saying that backup I, system didn't work great either. Well, there were hours, well, 100, hours, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. But what the point that they were trying to make is, or the, the the fear that they were trying to stoke, was that there was something nefarious going on, mm-hmm. and that that's where the problem is. Because yes, one hundred percent, they they shouldn't have used this app without proper testing. Um, they were problem with the reporting service, uh, the phone phone lines weren't you know they, people had a hard time getting through. Um, but the thing they didn't really report on, which they should have, was the process by which the results were going to be accurate. Because that's not going to sell. That's not going to keep people tuned in. That's not going to make the Twitterati that belongs to each campaign just go ballistic because, you know, there's something going on there Mm -hmm. and we need to look at it. Or, or, you know, we need to be be suspect of it. Um, Maybe, and maybe part of this is my own... I, I know the chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. I am a chair of a state party. Mm-hmm. I know I've been the I have been in the that hot seat when something goes wrong and you're trying to explain it in the most transparent way, but nobody's listening because the, their own story they're creating is better. Mm-hmm. So I give a little bit more latitude to what actually happened than what is being reported. Which makes complete logical sense. It also goes to another issue that I wanted to talk about, and this is a great example of it, which is that we are also at a point where we are more concerned with the horse race than we are the results. Oh, thank you. How do we reverse this? Oh. Because as I just said and was pointing out, if I'm Pete Buttigieg's campaign, right. I'm ticked off because I didn't get the media boost. I didn't get the attention from winning Iowa that would have been essential to maybe help me boost another percent or two and win New Hampshire. And then who knows as, as the races go on. He got the correct number of delegates. The actual substance, as you just said, was accurate. And that was the process. But this goes for everything. Mm -hmm. Voters are treated as pundits and not voters. And how do we get back to a point as a party and as a media where we talk about issues in a way to go back to healthcare, where we talk about what Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it or whatever your healthcare plan is will actually have an effect on people and not how likely it is to get a candidate elected. Okay, so we, we can't rely on the media for that. That's one of my what you just outlined is one of my biggest pet peeves. It drives right? me insane. Nuts, right? You watch these amazingly seasoned journalists uh, on the, I, you know, the Sunday shows or the mm-hmm. nighttime cable talk shows. Well, then some of them are just talking heads, but uh, and and all they want to do is talk to the candidate about the race and the polling and the how are you going to get this voters? How are you going to get? And they don't talk about policy. Let me. One of the biggest things that that okay, uh, that's a whole nother story about MSNBC versus CNN versus Fox, which we can talk about too. But gladly, yes. But uh, so I don't think we can get back there. So it, it, that's depressing. Well, I mean. Unless they put you and I in charge of, you know, king of all media, <laughs> king us, and queen of all media. Sign us up. <laughs> you know, this is, the, you know, I mean, the history of the reversal of the Fairness Doctrine of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that allowed multiple, that allowed corporations and to own multiple stations 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it used to be that you could only own seven and seven, right? Seven TV and seven radio stations across the United States. Now you can own what? Three in each market. I mean, it's yeah. the consolidation is crazy. Uh, the the fact that news is now a um, is now it's not a loss leader anymore. Now it's it drives revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So these it, it's kind of like public financing of elections versus money in politics, right? Like Which how another, another issue, conversation, yeah. but can we reverse that? You know, and and yes. Maybe there's hope in in politics. It might be a lot easier to reverse that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the media is now it's hungry for money, right? It's just the the news media. It's it's again. It used to be. Remember, maybe not that there used to be a firewall, right, between the news departments and the entertainment divisions, and they mm-hmm. didn't use they didn't communicate. The news was always a loss leader. They didn't have to make money. They just needed to report the news. Well, that line has been completely blurred. So I'm not sure that that's going to ever get back. But there is a there is a for us as Democrats and Democratic candidates, um, there is a, a fix for that, which is talking directly to the voter. So what's really, really important uh, is direct voter contact for any campaign. And we got away from that. You know, we actually just sort of went that by all we have to do is buy television commercials and the rest will take care of itself. And we stop talking to voters. And again, this is my experience in Tennessee. Right. But I think it's. I think it's uh, an experience that the DNC leadership now shares, right? The DNC used to be, not too long ago, just about we're going to be the arm that helps the president get elected. Well, now it's more about getting people elected at every level of, of government. So mm-hmm. um, so, uh, let, so let's get back to what the, the, the campaigns can do in order to overcome this media machine, which is direct voter contact, which is making the case directly to the voters. So, you know, it's the reason why the at the local level, if you're running for city council or county commission or state house, your time and energy is best spent knocking on doors and making phone calls to voters. Mm-hmm. Right. They want to hear from us. And that's when you can have those policy discussions with them. Right. And and very often what you'll find is someone you knock on somebody's door and they go, they're an independent voter, say, you know, they they switch back and forth. They'll say, uh, well, you know, I you and I won't agree on everything 100 percent. And so I'm going to I'm going to vote for you, though, because you came and talked to me personally. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that stuff is real and it happens. And it's the only thing that can overcome the the what's coming down from the media, which is often very skewed. They don't talk about policy and they only want to talk about the horse race. Mm-hmm. Uh, so unfortunately, I don't think that's going to get fixed. But we as Democrats, if we really want to do the work of the American people, we really do believe that there is um, government is a force for good. It's a public structure that we should invest in because we all benefit from it. Then we need to get our people elected who believe that. Is that kind of also the same answer to the question of how do we get people to vote for candidates that are aligned with what they actually believe policy-wise? Because Democratic policies poll a lot better than Democratic candidates. Like, how do we close that gap? Right. Um, Because it is honestly one of the most frustrating things. And and there's a million quotes, or not a million, but there's there's a a bunch of quotes from Greek philosophers when they they founded the idea of democracy. And a lot of the thinkers of the day went, this is a terrible idea because— the general population electorate is not going to be smart enough to vote for what is actually good for them and that we're better off having 
some smart people make decisions. Mm -hmm. And there are some days that I think that they were right. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. What what the way I always describe the country and change in this country is that we are not a speedboat. We are a cruise ship. Sometimes we make as a country really bad decisions but we course correct eventually. Mm-hmm. And that course correction is absolutely based on our values and policy. Um, healthcare, let's, let's just bring it back to healthcare again. Most people at this point know someone who has either had to declare bankruptcy because of medical debt, has died because they haven't, they didn't get healthcare. Uh, you know, uh, bef- uh, what, before we it knows a hospital in their area that is closed or has somebody mm-hmm. that has been affected by that, know somebody who can't pay their medical bills. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Before we started having the conversation about the Obama Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, uh, that wasn't. So what was that? Twenty. 2008? Past 2008, 2009, somewhere yeah. there. He was, or yeah, he was, he was inaugurated January 2009. Right. So, so I'm not saying that we didn't have the healthcare discussion, but mm-hmm. that policy, trying to pass that piece of legislation, really shined a light on, on healthcare in this country and how bad it really is for so mm-hmm. many people. So here it is, 2020 now, right? Um, and... The conversation is not just about that, those aspects of healthcare, but it's about how do we get is healthcare. Let me rephrase that. Back in the day, the argument was about is healthcare a right or a privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And there were, there were a lot of people who were arguing against it being a right. Now, I think the majority of Americans believe that healthcare is an absolute right, and that we need to get as many people in this country, to, which is why the Republicans want us to talk about, will you give health care to, to illegal immigrants, quote mm-hmm. unquote, illegal immigrants, because they know that the majority of people want America, America to be healthy, right? And right. That, so that's so they had to move the goalposts. They had to start right. talking about it in a which different... Which is what they're legitimately... Which they're so good at, right. They're at. so good at. But my point in saying this is we've the cruise ship has taken a turn in the right direction uh-huh. for... Healthcare for all. Now right. we're just trying to figure out the, the details of it. So, so that's what I mean by like we get there eventually as a country um, to the right thing, to do the right thing for our people and for everybody else. And we have the sense of community. Uh, but sometimes it just takes a while. More with Mary in a second, but wanted to take a second to essentially have a conversation that I've had with a lot of people and because I am fairly engaged, as I think you probably learned over the first 30 minutes here, and you'll continue to as we go, I have friends who reach out and ask me questions, and that happened a lot leading up to Super Tuesday or a lot of the other primaries that are going on. And one of the things that is a common theme is friends who live in liberal areas don't really know what to do. Like They vote in the primary, they, they want to make their voice heard, but they know that after the primary, it's kind of over. And it's, if their candidate was not one that was going to be viable, then they feel like they really have much of a voice anyway. And so I wanted to share a list of things you can do if you want to get involved and you think that, oh, but like I'm going to vote in November, but like I live in California, I live in New York, I live 
even at this point in Virginia, uh, where those are thought to be pretty solidly blue states. One, still vote because you never want to see something like what happened in Wisconsin, obviously in 2016, or Michigan, or Pennsylvania, or, okay, we're going to get depressed again. But there's more than just the president on the ballot, and I think sometimes people forget that. And as we're going to talk about with Mary, maybe the most important thing that could happen is flipping the U.S. Senate and keeping the U.S. House firmly in Democratic control. But there's also things that happen at the local level. So you have really important congressional seats, not just national, but state legislature, county council, that are going to make a difference in your life based off the policies that those people implement. You can donate to any candidate up to the presidential race, money that will help them win in a place where you can't vote, or down to, again, your county council race or your city council race. You can donate to organizations that do grassroots organizing or organizations that help voter rights or any number of issues that will play an important role in helping get the right politicians for what you believe get elected in November. You can volunteer to make calls that extend into swing states, or you could even go visit. If you live in California and you have the means to do so, you can go to Arizona and knock doors and you could help change the election by helping getting the candidate and the message out that you think is best for this country. And even though California is going to be solidly blue, Arizona is one of the most important swing states in November. So you can also sit in your house and make calls to Wisconsin or calls to wherever. You just have to hook up with the campaign and figure out how to do that. And you can also have conversations. And this is maybe the most important thing and why I wanted to do this podcast. So I'll say it's the most important for me, not the most important overall. You can have conversations with people about issues they care about. And you can try to explain to them why the way you see the issue is the best way forward. When we know people, we have a way in with them that they're going to shut off if a random person, say, comes and knocks on their door. We all have people in our lives that would be open to someone coming and knocking on their door and having a conversation and might be willing to change their mind. But we also have people that we know wouldn't. And we've probably gotten in fights with those people about certain things over time. But if you can use your communication skills, if you have high-level ones especially, to get them into a safe space and get them to a point where you're having a conversation about issues and really getting to the heart of what scares them. Because typically a lot of the anti-democratic sentiment comes from a place of fear. So if you can understand the fear and talk about how the solutions that Democrats put forward will actually be a solution to what they're afraid of, then you might have a chance of changing someone's mind. And the margins are razor thin. So changing one or two minds multiplied by hundreds and thousands of people across this country is what's going to change the course of that cruise ship. Back to our conversation with Mary, recorded at Z89 in Syracuse. How do we battle the fact that the Republicans shamelessly lie and get away? Like this, and maybe it's a media thing, but there's got to be, there's got to be a better answer than what we're doing now. I don't, there's a lot of things that I feel like I have thought enough about. I'm like, why haven't we tried this? This is one that I just, I'm completely mystified by Mm -hmm. because they were pretty shameless before. Then 2016 happened and oh my God, it got worse. Like how, how do we get to a point? And it goes to the educated electorate thing. How do we get to a point where 
we're educating voters on what is good for them, that they feel like they arrive at the proper thing that is going to wind up in them voting for Democrats because they believe in democratic policies, whether they know it or not. But they also realize that there's actual repercussions, meaning they get voted out of office for the Republicans lying at the rate that they do. I guess we'll see in November. That's also true. Because <laughs> 2018 is, was a heck of a turn. Right. And this is that's where the that's the course correction. Now, it, the 2018 election shows that in this instance with with a man like Donald Trump, who was elected for one reason, but clearly shows that he is a liar and he's corrupt and does not take responsibility for anything. The course correction is happening pretty quickly. Right. Happened. I mean, you rarely see that much of a of a change. Yeah. Forty seats in a house oh. in midterms is nuts. It is. And then if you drill down to the state level, what happened in some yeah. states? Right. Yep. Yep. So this course correction. So it goes back to uh, the American people being trusted with this democracy. And I trust them implicitly. And sure, it's it's not about it's not about here. Here's what it is about. It's about calling them out whenever they lie, as much as possible. It's also about our pol- trying to get our policy and values out there, right? Um, less about policy, but more about values. So right now, the Republican Party is being seen as the, Repo- of the party of division, um, and people are tired of it. You know, we're coming out there and we're saying, like, this is not who we are. This is not America, and we need to do better. And most people are agreeing with us on that basic value. Um, and And... You know, voters are not, they're not, some of them, well, voters are not generally uneducated. They just don't pay attention as early as some others. So mm-hmm. the people that are involved now in the in the primary process and trying to elect, that's not the entire electorate, right? It's a very small percentage. And as you get closer to an election, more and more people start to tune in. There are going to be some people who won't tune in until August and September of next year or right. October of next year. Right. And that's not something that we should blame them for, right? Everybody's got lives and jobs and they're working. Some people are working two and three jobs or, you know, just to make ends meet. And so nothing we should blame them for. It's our job as politicians in a political party to make sure that when somebody does stick their head up and go, oh, now I'm ready to listen, that we're there to make the case as to why they should vote for Democrats. And again, that's why direct voter contact is so important. But the other thing that's really important is the organizations that are out there doing uh, voter registration and get out yeah. the vote work, too, because that's that's also, you know, an engagement that needs to happen 100 percent. Most people, a lot of people... Not most people or a lot of people, but some people only vote every four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2018, the people that had the states that had midterm elections did a great job of motivating people who didn't like the direction the country was going to come out and vote in a midterm. But turnout is increased. It, I mean, in Tennessee alone, again, I, that's my frame of reference, but I think it's a good one because it's a sol- solidly red state yep. and it's a southern state. Democratic turnout is up 45 percent in the primary from 2016. Wow. I mean, that's extraordinary. Uh, People are engaged and tuned in, tuned in more than ever before. All right. So I got two more things that at least I think it's only two more um, (laughs) because we've been talking for like 40 minutes at this point um, that I wanted to ask you about. One of them is something you referenced 25 minutes ago of the 
need to sometimes moderate or the the need how needs change from district to district. We'll put it that way. Um, and I've always wondered how real that is versus how many of those things are based off of fear, because there are plenty of examples where Republican or sorry, Democrats run is essentially Republicans light and they get kicked because if people want a Republican, they vote for the Republican and they do. And there's also plenty of examples of Democrats who are unapologetic, unapologetic, unapologetically, he said, uh, <laughs> left and and progressive and liberal and and they win. There are also examples in the, in the contrary where um, you have candidates that kind of do find that magic balance somewhere in the middle and they're able to win in, in otherwise solidly red districts. So I'm curious, really, I guess, from an issue standpoint, what are, what are places that Democrats should be aggressive? And if, if you have a, if you're a candidate who lives in a red area and you have a firm belief in pick your policy, whether it's Medicare for all, free college education, something that is deemed left, which is, by the way, is a spectrum I've always hated because some of the things that get put left versus center, like the impeachment trial is the best example of this. Being for impeaching Donald Trump should not have been a left or right thing. Oh, my God, he's so far left for upholding the Constitution. Um, That's a different discussion, uh, which we're not going to touch here. But um, but (laughs) from district to district, how much... How important is the authenticity of the candidate? How important is it to figure out which issues you kind of want to stay away from because they might be losing issues? Or is is it really just about the authenticity and, and being, you know, saying what you think is best for the people that you're going to represent and letting the results fall where they may? You you nailed it. It's authenticity. Authenticity and listening are the two are the qualities, two qualities that make a great candidate. Also, your ability to raise money, unfortunately, yeah. makes the third one, right? But that's the sandbox we're all playing in. Mm-hmm. Authenticity is 100% what matters most. Because, again, if you're knocking on somebody's door and you have a difference of opinion on an issue, but you have an honest discussion about it and they, you know, and they can sense that from you, they, they, there's a good chance they're going to vote for you anyway. Mm-hmm. So, Why do you think that is? Because sometimes it would make sense that if these are the people that are going to make the rules that govern you, you'd even you, it, it'd be like, because I, I would say this to a Republican who came and knocked on my door. Yeah, I'll talk to you. Okay. Well, I think that the best way to create economic stimulus is to have tax cuts for the wealthy and, and they'll, they'll pay people more and trickle down economic stimulus. Like, I appreciate your honesty. You're insane. I'm not voting for you. That's never worked. But I appreciate your honesty. Have a nice day. Okay. Great, great point. So there's there's basically three buckets of voters, though, right? Mm-hmm. There's you mm-hmm. and me. We're Democratic voters. I I don't think I've ever voted for a Republican, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's the, the, the others on the other side that have never voted for a Democrat. Right. And then there's the people in the middle mm-hmm. that decide elections. Right. Those I've never the, understood those people. Well, well— I, I say that only half in jest. No, I, I get it, right? Um, I get it, but they're there and they're real. Yeah. And oh, they're not about a third of the, right, they're about a third of the electorate. They're, uh-huh. they're what decides the elections. So those are the people that you have to, you have to get out your base, right, mm-hmm. to vote for you, to work for you, to give you money. And then you have to, uh, uh, did I mention get out, you have to get them to vote for you, right, come out and vote. Right. And then the, the, the people in the middle are the ones that you have to do you have to convince, mm-hmm. uh, you know, within that within that group, 
um, yeah, might there be single issue voters that might say, well, uh, if you're a Democrat, but you have a 100 percent rating from the NRA, you're going to you're OK. Yeah. Mostly it's it's I know you from the community and you have a D behind your side, your name. And so that's why I'm going to vote for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the people on the right, even if they've known the person their entire life and they run as a Democrat, they're like, look, I love you, man, but I just can't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the people in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other part, the other part of those people in the middle are the ones that, um, you know, can be swayed by things like values and the fact that the, the direction of this country is going, it's just going way too far to the extreme right. That's not who we are. So now a Democrat could show up to their door and they're going, you know what? I, yeah, I'm going to vote for you this time because I don't like the, what the other guys are doing. Mm-hmm. So it's more like a referendum. This election is going to be a referendum on Donald Trump, basically, and, sure. and everything that he's doing. Uh, but we still have to show up and make the case and let them see our faces. Uh, did that answer the the question? Um, I think I wound up asking seven questions, which is a terrible <laughs> job hosting. Um, it, it answered certainly one of them. Um, but getting back to my original original question in this this section of the podcast, how you, the authenticity is just the the thing. And, and you don't really Jason believe... Kander actually wrote about this in his book, future right. podcast guest Jason Kander. Oh, he oh has, my gosh. He has agreed to come on. No uh, way. Which is incredible. That's amazing. Um, I'm going to yeah. be on the same podcast as Jason he Kander? Said, he said, get it off the ground, shoot me an email, we'll do it. Oh and my God, like, that's awesome. That's done. great. Uh, but he talked about this in his book, where he had a lot of those conversations as he would walk around Missouri. It's going, you know what? I don't disagree with you on anything, but you seem like you're a genuinely good person. I'm going to vote for you. Right. And so let's get back to let's use guns again. Right. Mm-hmm. If you if 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 that. If you've grown up in a community and you've been a gun owner your entire life and the and people know you. um, You're not going to have to say I have a 100 percent rating from the NRA. Right. You're going to be more because you're going to be concentrating more on the issues that matter to the people in your district. Mm. That's the other thing that is really important for candidates to know and to do is it's always jobs, the economy and healthcare. In in rural Tennessee now it's the opioid crisis, which could be lumped into healthcare. It's that's always a big three. But there's undoubtedly a local issue in your district that is causing discomfort, whether it's you know, a bridge that hasn't been repaired in 30 years and the the, the local school bus drives over it every day, mm-hmm. right? And the local government isn't doing anything. Like your state house rep or your county commission would rather talk about, you know, sanctuary cities or resolutions to ban gay marriage or whatever instead of concentrating on the infrastructure that your kindergartner drives over. And you embrace that and say, I'm 100 percent for fixing our infrastructure. That's going to get you some votes, too. Yeah. Right. So that's really that localizing of your campaign is is really important. So authenticity uh, is 100 percent important. Um, uh, You know, localizing your campaign is important. Um, And all of these things make for a a well-rounded candidate that can can win if all other things are equal. Let's not even talk about gerrymandering. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, there's the, you know, as I said, uh, the systems parts of, part of 
the whole political world fascinates me, but to I, that those are like single issue podcasts that I should probably do at some point well, later and, on and down the road. There, there are single issue voters, right? We've yeah. talked about guns and healthcare, but yeah. you know, I mean, there's a, a number Voting of other rights, gay marriage, other gay marriage, where you know, if you're if you're a Democrat and you've been defined by the Republican Party on those issues, and and they're they don't even, they won't even talk to you. They'll just be like, no, I know what you stand for. You want to take my guns away. Mm-hmm. Period. Full stop. So let me I'm ask not voting you, for you. I'm, I'm gonna this this was not my final thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna insert one here. Or say this is a this is like a, a parenthesis. This is like seven A or whatever number of question we're on. Because <laughs> you brought up guns a couple of times and I'm fascinated by this issue, um, because it's a major issue in our country for obvious reasons. And there's endless amounts of data that says we're doing it wrong. Um but for someone like you talking to candidates in Tennessee in a deep red place where it's part of the culture. And I'm as someone who's lived all over the country and grew up myself in the South. Like I'm aware that people have different feelings. And this is one of those things where like, yeah, if I'm running New York city, my gun laws should be different than in rural Tennessee. This doesn't necessarily have to be a federal issue, but there are probably things that we can say on the whole, it's good for person X, Y, or Z to not have access to firearms. And the, the line between that and we're going to take all of your guns. There's a lot of space between that. And I think that is one of the issues where there have been a lot of Democrats that probably do run a little scared and either try not to talk about it um, or just, I'm not going to say they lie about it, but they pretty much they try to avoid it at all costs. And I look at someone like Beto in Texas and what he was able to do, being super honest with people going, look, I'm not trying to take your guns, but I want to take a lot of guns from people who shouldn't have them because they're dangerous. And I want to put these checks in to make sure that you as a gun owner are safe. And hopefully you don't have to use your gun in self-defense. And he got, while he ultimately lost his Senate race, he got more votes in the state of Texas than any Democrat ever had. And so how do you approach specifically guns? I'm not even going to make it hypothetical. I'm going to make it about this issue. How do you approach it where you have so many policies that poll incredibly well amongst all people, yet you know relentlessly the NRA and the Republicans are going to attack you if you move one inch off of keeping the gun laws exactly the way they are right now? Uh, I mean, you have to expect that that's going to happen. Public opinion, again, speed uh, cruise ship, not speedboat, uh, is is changing uh, on this issue because of the tragedies that are um, happening. Because people bluntly keep dying. Well, well, people bluntly keep dying in places that are supposed to be safe spaces, mm-hmm. right? Schools, churches, mm-hmm. movie theaters, communities. Uh, so the the best way to approach this issue is through a values values based language, not specific policy. Mm-hmm. And if you start there first. That's what most people agree on. Eighty percent of the people in Tennessee did not want there to be guns in bars, right? The That's the Republic the Republicans passed it. More than Sheesh. that, right now we're we're in Tennessee having a conversation. More than that are against what's called permitless carry. Mm-hmm. The Republicans are ignoring them. They had hours of testimony from law enforcement. This makes me crazy because the, the, they pretend to be the party of, of law enforcement and, you know, pro-military. And, they claim to be the and, party of family and, everything. and values I know, and everything, I know, too. I know. But um, they had all this testimony about that from law enforcement, from people that train uh, new gun owners, from the military. And they all said, we don't think this is a good idea. And yet, to please the NRA, they're going to go ahead and do that anyway. That's changing public opinion about the Republican Party in the state and at the national level, right? So again, cruise ship is turning in the right direction on that issue because of how 
And we are basically getting better about talking about the issue in values language, which is we all as, as look, nobody wants to take your gun away. We believe in the Second Amendment. But when does your Second Amendment right infringe on my child's right to be safe at school mm-hmm. or that in a, in, a, in a shopping mall or mm-hmm. ju- in, a, in a public park? Right. Why? Why should I let you be allowed to bring your gun to a little league ball field? Right. That that's my safety and my freedom is now right. in jeopardy. So we talk a lot about it in terms of that language. When you're at the door as a candidate talking to a voter or you talk about safe communities, keeping communities safe, and how can we how can we agree on policy that will get us there, right? What's the policy we, we can agree on? Okay, uh, you're responsible for your gun. If you mm-hmm. don't keep your gun locked up safely, you should there should be a penalty for that. I, Everybody yeah. agrees on that. Like literally most people right. agree on that, right? Well, and, and the thing is we, we spend so much time on mass shootings, but the vast majority of gun deaths in this country are accidents Accident- or suicide. Exactly. Exactly. So so there's – and then about permis- permitless carry. Like we're not taking your guns away. We, we, you know, we believe that you have a right to keep your person and your family safe and go hunting and, you know, skeet shoot or whatever it is you want to do. Um, but should people that have uh, emotional problems, you know, or uh, are mentally ill, should they be mm-hmm. allowed to have a gun? No, nobody thinks that's a good idea. Right. Well, then we have to have background checks mm-hmm. and they have they should be universal and we have to have permits to be able to to carry guns. So we, we talk about it in a way where we can agree first and the policy comes later. We also say we want to work with the other side to get smart gun safety policy in place. They're not even, they don't even want to come to the table, mm-hmm. right? They don't, they don't want to have these discussions, right? They just want to do what they yeah. want to do. And trying to build those bridges is again, a separate podcast that would take it an hour. And I don't podcast. even know. Oh my God. That's another Part thing. three. Yeah. Yeah. We just might launch a series, man. <laughs> right. um, I did want to wrap up with one question about the horse race because it is fascinating to me at the presidential level of what could happen in trickle down to the legislative, uh, both at the state level and the national level races that are not at the top of the ballot. Um, and I don't know how well you can answer this or how much you have to couch an answer because you are an official here. Um, but I'm just going to ask the question and you can take it where it goes. Super Tuesday changed my mind about this race in a way that I didn't think was possible. You know, Joe Biden wins South Carolina in an unbelievable runaway victory, and the turnout he gets is outrageously high. He then does the same thing in North Carolina, Virginia, um, and as you mentioned, Tennessee, turnout was significantly higher. And if we're going to win Senate seats and keep the House seats and maybe flip more of them and win state legislatures and governor's races and all that— Turnout has to be high. So if you're looking at, if you even want to call that the horse race, it is, but also that means the people get elected who do the things that we want for the people. So it's the horse race to an end. So that's how I feel okay with myself asking this question. (laughs) That's just a lot of emotional thing that I had to get off there. Um, But do you think that Joe Biden specifically is a candidate as opposed to Bernie Sanders, who has had trouble turning out? more than his base, which, by the way, seems to be shrinking. Um, Does that change the dynamic of all races in November if he is the candidate? Or is it going to depend on a lot of other factors? Or is the answer somewhere in the middle? The voters are speaking. 
we will not know who the Democratic nominee is probably until we get to the convention. But the, mm-hmm. the voters, are the, it's the voters who are making the choice. Don't let right. don't let anybody think that there is some uh, there's not. Let me just say there is not a uh, there, there's not people in the background pulling strings because right. you can't we're voting. We're voting there. You can't pull that many strings. Right. And, right. and so. But we still don't know who that's going to be because there's a lot of Mm -hmm. voting that needs to happen. And I'm saying all this because no matter who the nominee is, it's everybody's job. If you're a Democrat and you want to get Donald Trump out of office and you want to take back the Senate and you want to keep the House and you want to win state House and state Senate seats, it's up to every Democrat to get out and help do that work to make it happen. To me, it doesn't matter who the the nominee is because the work is still going to be the same. Um, Mm. And it'll look different based on who the candidate is. Right. But the the work that needs to be put in is 100 percent the same. So um, I I don't look at it as, oh, my God, one is going to be easier than the other. I'm just completely focused, as are a lot of Democrats, on getting our people elected so that we can course correct in a very significant way in this country because we are heading in the wrong direction with a corrupt president and administration and we're going down some dangerous roads that could be could be and I'm, I don't say this lightly could be the end of this you know American experiment so again doesn't matter who it is we all have to do the work to make sure that people get elected so volunteer vote give money it's all really important even if you can only knock on doors, you know, one Saturday a month or make 10 phone calls a week. Pick your candidate and and please help and please get it done. It's very important. And and remember to focus locally, too. That's really important as well. Yes, to all of the above. And I, <laughs> it is refreshing to hear party leadership who understands the magnitude of the problem. And that is one of my biggest gripes at times with people who just want to, for instance, during the impeachment, be like, oh, but it's a political. No, no, no. Like this is the American experiment with democracy is on the line and treating it as anything but that is to underestimate the problem. Mary Mancini, by the time this comes out, you will be a WJPZ Hall of Famer. Congratulations. I get my orange jacket. Yes. I cannot wait. Thanks, Craig. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, if people want to help the Tennessee Democratic Party, where can they go? Let's let's oh, let's, let's, let's leave awesome. that. Let's leave that as the shout out for the end. So uh, you can go to tndp.org, like TennesseeDemocraticParty.org, mm-hmm. um, and feel free to email me directly at mary at tndp.org. And then actually, let me end with this. Is there a specific organization or charity you would like to shout out to help the people of Nashville who are hurting right now? A oh place my gosh. that I used to live thank as well, you. and a place that you call home. Yeah, thank you. So the community, there's so many. The Community Foundation has a fund uh, that will, that when you donate to that, fund um and i think it's community just google community foundation and that would be the place to to start with yeah mary mancini hall of famer chair of the tennessee (laughs) democratic party thanks so much to mary for coming on if you want more from her follow her on twitter at mary mancini i'm at craig hoffman thank you for listening if you like what you heard please subscribe to this podcast and share it on social media you can tag me Again, on Twitter, at Craig Hoffman. On Instagram, at Craig underscore Hoffman. Rate and review it on your favorite podcast app as well. And I'll be back again soon with more Chasing Interesting.